0: Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive
1: into Degenerative Diseases.
0: Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations.
1: Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve as chair of the DD SIG. I'm here today with Ryan Duncan. Assistant Professor of PT and Neurology at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thanks
0: for having me, Katie. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Maybe to start, if you could just tell us a little bit about kind of your role at WashU. Sure. And tell us about your path as a physical therapist and research and the steps that carried you to where you are today.
0: Sure. So my role right now as a faculty member is I am... Essentially, almost 100% research-wise. So I spend the majority of my time working on various studies. Um, One right now is related to exercise and Parkinson's disease, which you're familiar with because it's a a study that's a multi-site study between uh, Boston University with Terry Ellis and Kim Merhart at Washington University, so I help out with that study. I'm also working on rounding up a K-12 award, which I have, which is a career development award that was funded through the NIH. Um, And we can, I think we'll talk about this later, which was an intervention study looking at uh, essentially gait and balance training for people with Parkinson's disease who've had deep brain stimulation. And then I also have a pending grant submission that will hope to investigate uh, low back pain in people with Parkinson's disease because it's highly prevalent, yet we at least I remember in my clinical practice, I hardly paid attention to it, and I think that um, the data are telling us that we probably should look at it. And then, sorry, the other um, small percentage of my time, I'm, I'm course master of a course at WashU, uh, where it's basically, I tell people, it's called neurology medicine, but essentially it's like neuropathology, I guess. So how did I get where I'm at? It's a unique trajectory, I think. <laughs> So I, I went to Maryville University. I finished, which is a small school in about 20 miles west of St. Louis. Um, and I finished there with my master's in PT and took a job right out of school in acute care uh, orthopedics at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, which is paired with, or they're a partner with Washington University. So it's an academic medical center. And so I spent the first 10 months there um, working in the orthopedic for there. So i lots of joint replacements. Polytrauma, and then really big deal orthopedic surgeries. And so I was there for ten months. I was doing great. Things were good. And then one out of the blue, one of my professors from school said, "Hey, Yamen Earhart at WashU has this job open in her lab, and it's a research physical therapist." And she said that I know you are, you know, really passionate about research in school, so I think you should check it out. And so, kind of on a whim, I applied for the job, got it, and then decided to go. So. I was I did what probably a lot of people do is switch jobs in their first year. But I think it was obviously a very good move for me because it got me in the setting where I, I am now and I love it. So I initially started out in Gammon Earhart's lab as a research physical therapist working a couple of studies. And so those were the things that I really started on first that really once I got there basically sort of told me this is where I wanna be. I really loved research and asking questions and trying to collect the data in a very systematic fashion to, to get answers to those questions.
1: So can I ask, what were some of your earlier roles when you first started in the lab? Because if you were just a year out, right. You know, what kinds of things were you involved in? Anything that you felt prepared for and the things that you felt you really kind of were on the job learning?
0: Yeah, so my role was essentially collector of data. Um, But I I was essentially administering outcome measures like the bird balance scale or the mini best or having people walk across the gate, right? And and doing all of those things. So I totally felt competent in doing that. Although um, when I did first start out, I was learning on the fly because, you know, in school, you don't get that much on Parkinson's disease. And so having to really sort of on the spot figure out how to appropriately guard people and things like that is something that I felt like I was learning on the job because you don't really get that prepared in school, I think, for that. Things that I also felt like I was not prepared in school to do was things like starting to write manuscripts. I had entered data before even in undergrad and things like that. And so I was doing that. I did not feel at all qualified at that point to run any statistical analysis. So that was left up to the gammon. Um, but once we met and went over those, that's when I started to write the paper. I also... Learned a lot from that because I think one of the biggest things I learned is don't wait too long to ask for feedback on that because I would sit on papers for several weeks and probably change a few words here and there, trying to make it perfect, only for it to come back with tons and tons of red ink all over it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think you know trying to balance the right time to take on mm-hmm. a role like this versus the right opportunity, and I think yeah. really kind of the the winner should be the right opportunity, you know, and things yes. that. You know, even if you don't feel like you're 100% qualified to jump in on this type of role, I think what you said that struck me was more of those hands-on skills. So yeah. you, it's not just about knowing how to be an outcome assessor, as, yeah. I'm, as I was called myself. Yes, um, right. That was my official title. But using, you really need those skills to be able to guard the patient during whatever outcome measure Um, that you're doing Mm -hmm. to kind of keep it safe and to make sure that there's validity in not providing assistance or realizing that maybe this person's not appropriate. And so, you know, there are opportunities in research. It's not just about data analysis and sitting at a computer. Right. But, you know, it can be very clinically relevant um, and your input is, is much needed.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of it too can be what you make of it. Right. So like Gammon was Fantastic with me, and I'll refer to her as Gammon going forward. But Gammon Earhart was fantastic in giving me opportunities to do things that I was interested in doing. So, but she was also fine to like take the lead if I wasn't interested, right? So, like if I didn't want to write papers or things, I think she would have been fine with me kind of just doing my job as an outcomes assessor and then and then going home at night. But I was really intrigued by the research process and really wanted to get really. Intimately involved with it. So I decided to even though as you said like you may not feel comfortable with these things Having that open mind and willingness to learn um, Can take you a really long way
1: Yeah, you mentioned um, your career award uh, Maybe you could give us kind of to fast forward a little bit um, Kind of take us through the path of Applying for that coming up with the idea uh, kind of where things are with the project at this point
0: So, so the nih has this pot of money that they hand over to institutions that then train people to become researchers. So, WashU was the main site where there was other sort of other uh, partner sites as well. So, Pittsburgh University of Pittsburgh was one, University of Delaware was one. Um, there are also some satellite sites involved, like Boston University, University of Colorado, and I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple. Emory University. So they essentially up with their own review panel they have a structured training program that you're supposed to go through and then at the end the idea is that you're an independent researcher that's able to go on and compete for your funding um, as as just yourself without a mentor there to sort of guide you along so i mentioned that you know when i started this job um, i was again super intrigued by the process and started to become, over time, as I was also practicing in the clinic, seeing patients with Parkinson's disease, I realized that I had my own questions about, you know, why does this happen, or why does this, or why does this work, or why doesn't this work, and started to sort of feel like if I want to answer those, I need to get more training to figure out how to do that, because as DPTs, we're not qualified to be independent researchers in the absence of additional training. That's my opinion, because it's it's super complex. And so I felt that if I was going to do this, I need to go get training. And so that uh, Career Development Award was an avenue that I could go for to do that. So you submit, you have a research plan, it's the proposed research project that you would work on for two years, and you have a career development plan that you have to show activities that you will undertake over those two years to propel you to becoming an independent investigator. So I'll, I'll try to break down those couple of things quickly. So my research plan was the study on deep brain stimulation uh, for people with Parkinson's. So looking at whether or not gait and balance training can be something that's safe, feasible, and effective for those people because uh, they haven't been studied. And we don't know whether or not they respond in the same way. Uh, that people without DVFs might so we set up sort of a little pilot randomized control trial and the data are now collected and finished we're just cleaning them up and then getting ready to analyze them so stay tuned for the findings uh, I can tell you it's safe and feasible so nobody got hurt and no and everybody did it um, at least to the threshold there that we set so um, but I can't tell you the the preliminary data on whether they we improved balance or data or anything
1: I was just going to say that like, this is really unique. Yeah. And I I think I fast forwarded too much. So you started out as this outcomes assessor um, and now you have this career award with a big grant and Mm -hmm. you're running a balance study in people with Parkinson's. Yeah. And, you know, I think trying to encourage PTs to get involved in research, you probably had a lot of different roles and different projects where you, you know, as you said, you picked up that right level of experience yeah. Um, and it seems that you had a lot of good mentors who probably pushed you along. Um, yeah. So I can't help but wonder, how would you give someone advice if they were just looking to start to get some of this experience to be able to build their career this way?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I somehow failed to mention the importance of mentorship so far. Um, but the, the the Career Development Award that I was telling you about is a mentored Career Development Award. So in order to get it, you have to have two or multiple very qualified mentors who will sort of guide you along in the process. So it's not that I just get a, a career development award. I go it alone and all of a sudden I know how to do research. It's, it's, it's very much an work. So yes, I strongly encourage people who are interested to figure out how to connect themselves with investigators in the field. I think there's numerous ways to do that. I guess the easiest, but the hardest road probably would be to go back to school and get a PhD and work under one of those mentors.
1: So I have to interrupt. Sure. So is a PhD on your path?
0: Uh, it's not. Not yet. I mean, I, I never say never, but, but as part of the Career Development Award that I, that I had, that training that I had to do, I completed a Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation, um, so I had three years worth of coursework that was dedicated to really immersing myself and learning about clinical research and statistics and study design and all those sorts of things. So I do have training now that I can document. It's not to the level of the PhD, but um, thus far I've had some success, which I think I think as long as you, particularly when you're going up for grant funding, that you can demonstrate a... A history of productivity, you can demonstrate that you have adequate training to carry out certain studies, then you'll be competitive. So, But but again, no, it's not on my path right now. So,
1: <laughs> Well, and I think probably for people listening who maybe have an interest in getting into research, they think that that has to be your path. You know, that right. you get involved in research and the idea is you figure out if you like it enough to kind of continue down that yeah. kind of higher academic route. Um, yeah. And I know from what I know of you so far, that hasn't been a case and same for me kind of coming from a research background. I don't see that as my path either. Um, and maybe we could just talk a little bit about, what, um, some other unique ways that clinicians can start to put on a researcher hat.
0: Yeah. I think it was really beneficial for me, one, to treat first and then to, then to move into research. Not that if you got a job, a research job right out of school, you could you shouldn't do it. I think you should jump on it because those opportunities are few between. But being in research and then going back into the clinic at WashU, so sort of splitting my time between research and clinic, I thought it made me a whole lot better clinician because the principles taught in research about making sure that you uh, collect data in a very systematic way was one of the biggest things that I took into my practice. So like, for example, if I'm going to do the five times sit to stand task on a patient, I'm going to make sure I use the same chair at the initial vowel and also when I discharge them. Just those those little things that I think made me better. Um, but also, I think one of the things that research taught me a lot too is to be uncertain of myself. So I really, I tell students this all the time. I don't deal in absolutes. All, like, I never say this is always going to work or this is never going to work. It's sort of, it may or may not. But I think that gets a little bit away from your question. So how can you get involved? I think treating every patient like a data point, honestly. So don't, but also don't lose any of the empathy that you have for those patients. Continue your interaction, but set up your electronic medical record in a way that you can input data and then easily get it out. When you do outcome measures, make sure you do them at, try to do them at the same time of day, initial about and discharge. Um, use the same equipment, read the instructions when you give outcome measures, things like that, because those are all things that can really muddy the waters if you decide to not do them that way. And then you go back and try to interpret some data.
1: And what about, I mean, I agree that the clinic feeds research and the research feeds kind of your clinical eye. And so kind of having your hand in both is unique. You're right. There aren't um, a number of these types of positions but, as a clinician trying to incorporate research in um, yeah. so looking at if you have someone if you're measuring a balanced outcome, yeah um, sure. and you're trying to determine if someone's a follower or not, and yeah. you get a score yeah how would what how would you advise a clinician to kind of incorporate the research for that outcome measure right,
0: so I think what you're getting out is the cutoff score <laughs> so you. You, obviously, you get your score, and then you have to decide whether or not that person at fall risk in the coming, whatever, six months or future. Again, I just said that I don't ever deal in absolutes, and this is a clear case of that, where even though there's cutoff scores, there's always false negatives and false positives associated with those cutoff scores. So unless it has 100% sensitivity and specificity, which often does not. Um, and so because you get this cutoff score, we tend to say, yes, you scored a you know, below a 45 out of 56 on the bird, so you are absolutely 100% going to fall or you're at fall risk. Well, maybe not. Maybe they don't move enough to be at fall risk. Maybe they're already competent enough using their device where they don't fall all that frequently. Or maybe they are at a very, very high fall risk. It's sort of hard to say, but to place such an emphasis on one score um, to me is a little bit misleading because there's a chance that we're going to be wrong either way. Uh, The other thing that I do from those scales, so like, for example, I use the mini bus test a lot in practice. I know the bird is still... Highly recommended and also was recently recommended in the core set of outcome measures. But the mini best test for me, I'm not just looking at the total score. I'm looking where, looking at where did the patient lose point so that then I can figure out where to intervene. And that's the reason I like the mini best test is because you can sort of parse it out into, well, are there deficits in anticipatory control? Are they in reactive control? Are they in stability and gait? things like that, that can then help me further tailor my treatment.
1: No, absolutely. And I also see kind of collecting data across different patients seems like a big data set to me as well. So if you do the same balance test, you know, as recommended by these uh, different edge documents that you, you start to see trends. So, you know, particular to Parkinson's, you know, early on um, you might see patients, might not perform as well. Like for me personally, I saw a lot of patients fall out in the single limb stance and some of those more anticipatory um, and reactive balance measures. Yeah. And then later on having, you know, I would see different, different balance challenges of patients who had been living with Parkinson's for longer periods of time, but not, that came from a perspective of treating lots of patients um, and kind of keeping that eye open, you know, as a researcher treating in the clinic, I felt like I had this opportunity where I was exposed to different patients, um, you know, kind of living with different symptoms, but we really yeah. trying to see trends. You know, even if it's right. not something I'm going to publish or say it's yeah. statistically significant, it is significant to my clinical practice and growth kind of as a clinician.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, sort of the beauty of the electronic medical record now is it's a way for you to capture data that can allow you to, at the very least, go back and answer questions that are highly relevant to your practice. And, and a lot of times, you, you know, for those retrospective studies, if you're just collecting data as part of your clinical practice, you don't need to do the things like get an IRB on the front, IRB approval on the front end. Those are typically less burdensome than the traditional IRB approval that you get. But, but again, if you're sitting in your clinic and you're asking yourself these questions about why does this happen or why does this happen, you know, if you collect the data in a systematic fashion, you can go back and answer those, or at least, like, get an idea of what's, what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the, the, the stuff that I saw in the clinic led to projects or at least analyses. The direct example of that is I always wondered in the clinic, like, people who have freezing of gait tend to fall more. I was, like, curious to know, if they have worse balance, are they falling because they have worse balance? Or is it just simply they fall when they freeze? Is it a combination of that or whatever? So that led to directly a project. So mm-hmm. it's, it's something that's available to everybody. If you think that all research needs to be done in a laboratory, I think you're kidding yourself a little bit. And to be honest, when I was doing this master's degree program and I was in classes with all physicians and surgeons, Nearly all of their projects were retrospective chart reviews of different questions that they had, and the beauty of that is they had all of the data there. So you think all those lab values that they get from blood draws or different surgical procedures or whatever, are all in the EMR, and they can go back and mine that data to answer questions. And to expand on that point a little bit more is, I think, one of the things that we see a lot is limitations in rehab studies, or that. The patients who participate in research studies are not the patients that are in our clinic. Well, why don't we collect the data on the patients who are in our clinic to see if that is in fact true? Just start to ask questions. First, start with your clinic director and say, hey, I'd like to start collecting data on this. You know, what do I need to do? Um, And then they should be able to at least refer you to somebody. Um, Most institutions are affiliated with an IRB, but if you're just figuring out how to collect data as part of your clinical practice and set it up in the right way, ask the manager or reach out for me, I'm totally fine We're happy to answer a question.
1: Well, you would be a fabulous resource for clinicians who just, so maybe they don't know where to start or they have this question and they think, well, what what are the steps that I can take to kind of move in the direction of answering it? Like it might not be a career award, but like you're saying, it could be a case study, just trying to understand the patient and then kind of building the skill set from there in terms of data collection and analysis. Um,
0: Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of that. I, I think we should be doing that more, a lot more.
1: Well, the other thing that I think you've really contributed is particular to your DBA, your study looking at balance in patients post-DBS um, yeah. is your intervention piece, which mm-hmm. can be frustrating as a clinician when you're reading research papers, and the study has really great results in their intervention, but you don't know what they did or they're very vague in their description or dosage, um, or even yeah. adherence. So you're not sure if people stuck to it, Yeah. but your intervention was very specific. Um, you're very yeah. generous and gave out all the handouts, um, in a very detailed way that I felt like I could almost print this, draw my yeah. figures, uh, yeah. particular to the patient. So they had a sense of how to do it and, and hand it off. And it was obvious that you were a researcher in the clinic.
0: Yeah. So one of the things as part of this balance and gait training study, which is majorly focused on balance training, as I was going to design it, I was curious enough. you know, I, I was fairly familiar with the literature on balance training in Parkinson's, but I wanted to go back and see what, what did people do specifically in terms of like dosing and how did they know when to progress exercises and things like that. And what I was finding is that it was all very unclear. Um, so many of the studies will say, oh, we did balance training and we did static standing and we did, you know, perturbation training and things like that. They never tell you, well, how long did you stand statically? How many perturbations did you give them? Which directions did you give them in? Um, how many repetitions of perturbations did you give? So as a clinician, as you know, like that's, if you don't have those answers, then how can you accurately implement it in the clinic? I mean, you really can't. You're just guessing. And so what I wanted to do as part of the study is make the intervention reproducible. That You could, like you said, basically print it out and do exactly what I did. But the idea would be that you could use that intervention protocol and reproduce the same result with your patient. But nonetheless, I think we in rehabilitation research need to get way better about describing the interventions that we provide and making sure that they can be reproduced by somebody who's going to be in the clinic looking at our research. Like, how would you how would you like it if you know, like, the physicians doing research didn't really get, tell you the dose that, of the medicine that they were giving you? They just kind of just threw it at you and said, "I don't really know." Here you go. Like, that's that's not a good right. <laughs> and so, it, a little bit what we fall into a research in rehabilitation is it's a, the interventions are not adequately described to allow for reproducibility and this is actually not as it's not unique to rehabilitation research reproducibility is hugely problematic for a lot of areas of science but doesn't mean we should not try
1: exactly exactly and i think this is a model you know for other researchers to see that it's possible yeah. and that the feedback that i'm sure you're already have everyone's very excited
0: oh good I- I'm excited too. I mean, I can tell you, like I said, it was safe, but nobody got seriously hurt ever Um, and no no people did it. So our adherence was really, really high, which is good. We, again, I don't know whether it changed data balance or not. We'll see. Um, The hope is that it did. But nonetheless, even if it didn't, this is still a starting point that we could either say, If it didn't change balance or gait, then maybe the intervention as designed was underdosed or didn't focus on the right thing, and then we can figure out where to adjust.
1: Yeah, and I think even bringing it back to the clinic, if there are better dosage studies, I think there's more justification for continued therapy or for, from the insurance perspective, kind of justifying why you're keeping a patient with a certain profile in more of an intensive therapy session. It's a growing body of literature and research, but it's, um, it's an area that I think there's a, a need for. Yeah. So, Ryan, I'm going to come full circle. Your earlier days were orthopedic. Yeah. And one of your latest studies is on low back pain in patients in Parkinson's disease. And so yeah. kind of help us bridge the gap between your early days and how you ended up getting interested in low back pain.
0: Yeah. uh, I think if I, I guess to first, like I'd be lying if I said I took that first job because it was orthopedics. (laughs) Like I I took it because it was at an academic medical center and then I just happened to be placed on the orthopedic floor, which was not a bad thing. Like I really enjoyed it. And then I also taught me a lot of the principles about being good at analog movement um, and figuring out how those movement impairments lead to difficulty with function. So then as, as I went on in practice and went to Wash U and then I told you that I was in the clinic there for several years, that I would find that my patients with Parkinson's often had pain. It was often in the back or the shoulder and I didn't know what to do. I was completely inept, might be the right term, because I had no clue of what, what does the literature say about uh, how do you fix back pain in people with Parkinson's disease. and Really, when I went to go look at the literature, the answer is we have no idea, to be honest. We hardly even understand it, though it is really highly prevalent in that population. So that's another example of how how the clinic can spark these questions that you can then take it into your own hands and try to figure out how to investigate. So the proposed study that, uh, that I and my mentors published basically describes that people with Parkinson's disease uh, have functional limitations related to low back pain and that back pain related disability is both related to physical activity and quality of life, such that the worse the back pain gets in Parkinson's, the lower their physical activity level and the worse it gets, the worse the back pain gets, the worse their quality of life. So it suggests there's something that we need to pay attention to. And ultimately we probably need to figure out how to deal with it because the prevalence in some studies is upwards of 75% of people with Parkinson's have low back pain. And so it's probably not the whole picture, obviously, that's contributing to movement dysfunction in these patients, but it's probably part of the puzzle. And if we don't address it, we're probably not going to deliver as optimal of an outcome as we could.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're focusing on in treatment for particularly for patients with Parkinson's is moving and exercising and becoming more physically active. And so for someone who has been sedentary or isn't, doing a regular exercise program. I don't think it's unrealistic as a therapist to expect that they might encounter some joint or or back pain, not saying that we're moving them into immediately into it. um, But I think you have to be mindful of it because like any of us, if we haven't done something in a while and then we get back to it, you might have some new aches and pains. Some of it is very normal um, and kind of expected after exercise. And some of it is, you know, things that you have to learn how to manage. Again, so yeah. you can continue on. But right. you're right. I think as a neurotherapist, we're not treating back pain the primary complaint. Um, a lot right. of it is kind of secondary. Yeah. And so trying to see where you can intervene early on to, to avoid, avoid the back pain because it is, it can be very yeah. troublesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the biomechanical piece is probably very important. You sort of led on to what I have to work with students a lot, but also clinicians is that we as neurotherapists shouldn't forget that people have muscles and bones um, and that they may have pain associated with those muscles and bones, just like orthopedic therapists shouldn't get that people have a nervous system. But to your point also about the back pain, it's, it's funny that how little is known about it in Parkinson's other than we know it's pretty prevalent. And there's But we also need to decide or figure out what are the drivers behind that pain. Clearly, they do have these biomechanical issues, right? They're stiff. They're probably often bent forward. They have shortened gait. Their lack of movement in the spine, things like that, certainly could contribute. They also have a degenerative neurologic disease, which affects the dopaminergic system, which is also implicated in pain response and sensitivity to pain. Right? they So, people with Parkinson's might be hypersensitive to pain. We don't know that yet. Although, there are some studies to suggest that they are not specific to low back pain, though. And then also, they're, they have a lot of psychologic factors, too, right? So, they're often depressed and they have anxiety and they have cognitive impairment. And how do all of those things play a role um, in that pain? And so that's what a current grant proposal I have into NIH is to try to figure that out. So let take this very comprehensive look at patients with Parkinson's who have low back pain and looking at these biomechanical, sensory, and psychological factors to see do they differ from people with Parkinson's who don't have low back pain? And also, do they differ from older adults who do have low back pain? So it's, it's sort of an interesting setup, and we'll see if, the, if it gets funded. Fingers crossed
1: yeah well we're we're rooting for you because it would be i want I want the results now, which in research that's never the case, <laughs> it takes a very long time to get a study funded and going and, I wish yeah I know i
0: so to to tie that back in, I think you know you can start collecting this kind of data on your patients if you have these questions about wow, I'm seeing all these patients with spinal cord injury and they have shoulder pain. we'll start administering a questionnaire where it's like the dash or whatever, something like that, where you can start to get answers about that and see how that relates to their functional performance. So you, as a clinician, have the power to start to answer these questions. And I hope that one thing you take from this is that you can start to do that through your own practice.
1: Well, Ryan, you've given us a lot to think about, and hopefully we've gotten some listeners excited about getting involved in research.
0: Yeah. I think if I could give a plug for one more thing, so join the section on research through the APTA. That's a huge resource. And obviously, I, if you're listening, to those you are probably a member of the Neuro uh, Academy, but if you're not, I recommend that as well, because those are two great ways to get started. And then always take advantage of networking opportunities. If you go to CSM, go to the Myel and Melter, go to the the events that the research section puts on because that's an easy way to start to meet people who are, who are connected.
1: No, those are great, great suggestions. And of course the degenerative disease SIG will be at CSM. <laughs> so if anyone finds us, we can certainly put you on the path to start to get involved in research or find Ryan. We'll locate him yes. for
0: you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yep.
1: <laughs> Ryan, you've certainly had an interesting career in research. And you have a lot of things that I know you're involved in. Maybe you could tell us, when you're not busy in the lab, what are some things you like to do?
0: Uh, I'm a big sports fan, so being here in St. Louis, I would be remiss if I did not point out that we beat the Boston Bruins this past year to win the Stanley Cup. So our first Stanley Cup ever, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, I would, I didn't think that I would cry if that happened, but I did break down in tears when I, we won. So that was awesome. Uh, obviously a big baseball fan here in St. Louis. The Cardinals are, you know, you know everything goes with the Cardinals here. Um, and then also love spending time with my family. So we have my wife and then two kids. My daughter, Stella, is five. My son, Rhett, is almost three. And so they, they keep us very, very busy with doing different activities and things like that all the time. Um, So those are, you know, that's my life right now as kids. I don't have much time for hobbies otherwise. So, but that's fun. I love it. Great. And you know that. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, thanks, Ryan, for being with us today and sharing your insights into how to get involved in research. And hopefully we've inspired a few clinicians to get involved.
0: Great. I appreciate you inviting me. Feel free to reach out anytime.
1: We will make sure to put all your information in the show notes. Cool. Thanks again. Thanks to our volunteers, Stacey Pepitone and Nicole Seward for helping with preparation for our podcast today. This podcast was produced by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the AMPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall and Parm Padgett, and thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. So we have bloopers, Ryan. Is that, is that, who is that? That's, that's Jeff doing construction. It'll be muted in a minute.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, like I said, I can't tell you the findings.
1: We yet. almost got it.
0: <laughs> I, um,
1: we almost got it out of you. How dare your internet cut me off? Can you hear me now?
0: <laughs> Can you? No. I can't hear you though. Can you hear me? Is the mic on the, these headphones at this little bar that I'm touching? Yeah, it said my internet connection was unstable.
1: There's so, like, sounds like there's a little bit of like scraping almost, and I can't figure out where it's coming from. Mm. <laughs> I, do you think it's the fan in the computer? Might be. Do we need a different ending? <laughs>